Thank you, Bryony, and thank you too for the invitation and for the help that Marta and you have given in presenting this. Towards the end of her seminal book, On Weaving, Ernie Albers addressed the current state of textile art. Characteristically forthright, her view was unsparing, and I quote, at present we are still groping, she wrote. The, effort, the efforts of weavers in the direction of pictorial work have only in isolated instances reached the point necessary to hold our interest in the persuasive manner of art. Experimental, that is, searching for new ways of conveying meaning, these attempts to conquer new territory even trespass at times into that of sculpture. The text reference number accompanying this statement directs readers to plate 103, to an image in detail of Nora Tawney's Dark River from 1961. In a previous text, Albers had defined the province of sculpture as volume, that of architecture as space, and texture as primary to textiles. Also paradigmatic to her aesthetic was the concept of weaving as a pliable plane made from a structural grid of interlacing threads. When she wrote on weaving in 1963-64, it was published in 65, Tawny was the only one of the new cohort of textile artists whose work adhered to Alba's strictures, its free-hanging occupation of space notwithstanding. Increasingly, the work of Tawny's peers in moving off loom and forsaking a grid-based structure took on complex, irregular volumetric form. And I'm thinking, for example, of several of Sheila Hicks's early works, such as Manga from 1961, and works by Europeans such as Magda Abakanovich and Dugoda Puik. In the body of the text, Albers makes no specific commentary on Tawny's work, though she did caution, and I quote, limitlessness leads to nothing but formlessness, a melting into nowhere. There too, she cited Raphael's cartoons, which are now in the V&A, as you know, for tapestries for the papacy, reminding her readers, and I quote, trespassing into another art form, however great that form may be, does not necessarily bring forth great artworks. For Albers, the future lay elsewhere than with this younger generation. Her qualified assessment of the current situation came towards the end of a chapter in Non-Weaving titled Tapestry. The potential of that venerable art form as an expressive medium elicited, however, a similarly qualified affirmation. Quote, Tapestry weaving is a form of weaving that reaches back to the earliest beginnings of thread interlacing, is still with us today, and may have a future noteworthy of its promise. At the conclusion of this chapter, Alvis returned to her opening claim, arguing that if art was to be part of the increasingly fast-paced world, a world whose hallmark was its nomadic character, then, quote, it may be that we will take along a woven picture as a portable mural, end quote. While she conceded that the Far East, of course, quote, had this idea of portable murals long ago in the form of scrolls, she nonetheless proposed Perhaps we can find for it our own form. Six examples of contemporary portable murals were illustrated in plates 104 to 109 followed the one devoted to Tawny's Dark River. 
Once again, there was no discussion of the individual pieces in the body of the text. Most had been woven in Aubusson, the traditional heart of French tapestry making, like Nuo Sac, which was made posthumously from a design, perhaps a painting, by Auguste Herbin. Cassiope, by Victor Vassarelli, was composed mainly of flat areas of color. Albus described these as exceptional works of art, very different from most tapestries then made concurrently in the famous French workshops. Though also technically expert, they, by contrast, she contends, are of mainly decorative value. For her conviction, when we, de quote, when we decorate, we detract and distract, was deeply rooted. The position Alba's articulated in On Weaving would soon align her with the conservative wing of contemporary textile production as it played out in contentious debates at the Lausanne Tapestry Biennale in Switzerland in the late 1960s. Founded by French painter Jean Lussa, who sought to re resuscitate the ailing French tapestry tradition by encouraging fine artists to produce large woven works, the Biennale soon became the forum for radical modes of off-loom fibre art by the likes of Abakanovich, Wick, and others, all of whom sought recognition as contemporary artists for their monumental three-dimensional fibre pieces. In 1969, curators Jacqueline Larson and Mildred Constantine unveiled a much-heralded show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which was titled Wall Hangings. It, too, was dominated by work that trespassed into the realm of sculpture, to borrow Alba's coinage. There was no place in it for tapestries, whether designed by fine artists or studio craftspeople. Alba's was included in the show with only one piece, with an untitled wall hanging from 1927, her Bauhaus phase, in other words, as an historic forebear. For the curators held her recent work, whether it took the form of pictorial weavings or of large-scale public works for synagogues in scant regard. However, nothing, I think, makes clearer her distance from their remit than the commission she'd realized two years previously for the new, newly constructed Camino Real Hotel in Mexico City, designed by Ricardo Legaretto and helpfully just uh, revealed to us by Anna Elena. As Anna Elena said, this was made by a company on the east coast of the United States. It's a large-scale applique work made from felt triangles that are stitched together, and until last year it had been thought lost. Based on an in-situ photograph, I think it's probably roughly 12 to 14 feet high and maybe 10 feet wide, but maybe someone here can give me more precise dimensions. It's composed from myriad small pink, red, and crimson isosceles triangles gridded into abstract zigzag configurations that recall both the iconography of certain Mesoamerican textiles and the pyramidal architecture of ancient Mexico. Given this um, technique of uh, stitching together felt pieces uh, it may also have a vernacular tradition, and uh, that's something we could talk about. It reminds me, for example, of felt quilts, which were made by the British military uh, in um, places like India, um, but there may be something much closer in Latin American traditions. In many ways, 
it mines vocabulary already well established in Alba's oeuvre, which you see, uh, for example, you see references to Peruvian tapestries and to um, architecture here. But much closer and more directly is the Vaccaro rugs, um, two versions of which she'd made or she had made in 1959. Given these complex lineages, um, it's important, I think, to remember that it was destined for a country that as early as 1930, her husband Joseph had argued, quote, was the promised land of abstract art. That is, a country marked, as Bryony has written, by, quote, a different order of relationship of modernity to the ancient past. Even in photographs, there are striking differences between the rug made from Vicara, which is a coin scene product, uh, wool and cotton, and the tapestry. Each exploits the texture and structure of its materials. The tufted wooliness of the white triangles, which are actually made from Vicara, not wool, stray into the adjacent flat fields in the rug whereas the refined edges distinguish the flat forms of the felt components in um, Camino Real. Camino Real is made in unprecedented, or within Alba's work, high key range of colors that read uh, as crystalline forms. With his closely toned vibrant palette, it must have generated an intense spatial dynamic as optical as it was tactile in which slight planar shifts and color modulation together animate the flat surface. Though its vocabulary draws on ancient Mesoamerican lineages already passed in our reserve, as I've said, its high-keyed reworking imbues it with an assertively modern valence, one which brings to mind not only the art of, say, Victor Vassarelli, whose tapestry Cassiope was, as I noticed, illustrated in On Weaving, but contemporary paintings by artists such as Bridget Riley. Consider, for example, Denai II, which was made in 1967 that same year and is now in Tate's collection, with its composition of repeated geometric forms in two subtly distinct blue-grays. Not incidentally, Denai II was executed, as was Riley's practice by this time, not by the artist herself, but by skilled technicians, assistants working under her supervision. When making this comparison, I'm not ignoring Alba's avowal, quote, I don't want to do anything that trespasses into painting, but rather suggesting a parallel based not in techniques and material, but in a ubiquitous contemporary visual idiom that ranged beyond fine art into mass culture. If, with its portable form and its engagement with architecture, Camino Real speaks to what Alba saw as the fast-paced nomadism of modern life, Equally, it references features of the mechanical and of the technological era long integral to modernist vocabularies and aesthetics. Within a year, the formal language that Alvis had devised for Camino Real proved generative in printmaking, the art form to which she increasingly devoted herself after giving up her looms at the end of the 60s. This reorientation began with pencil studies such as Triadic TR1, soon evolving into TR3 and TR1. Oops, sorry. Uh, 
It's important to note that though she had begun her career as a printmaker in 1964, first with lithography, creating somber prints whose obviously hand-drawn images of single threads were set against vaporous washy grounds, Albers quickly prioritized reproductive processes, notably silkscreen and offset fire, uh, photography, and delighted in working at local commercial companies whose output was utilitarian printing, far removed from the fine art spheres of Tamarind and Gemini presses. Among the most beautiful of her graphic works are a quartet of blind embossed prints, mountainous one to four, made at the end of the 70s. Dispensing altogether with a liquid medium, they were produced by the impress of a zinc plate cut to her design by a highly skilled technician and pressed into thick paper supports. Eggclaw, and you see samples on the right, made between 76 and 79 for knoll textiles, expanded this vocabulary into designs for fabric. Tellingly, Albers now ventured for the first time into the realm of printed as opposed to woven fabric. Eclat's vibrant design in semi-transparent dyes is silk-screened onto linen or cotton cloth. Both in those examples that utilize a single earth tone in dialogue with the natural color of the fiber, and in those that employ primaries against what reads as a white ground, the gridded weave of the fabric is ever-present visually as well as tactilely. Thus, the repeating pattern, while not literally structural, as would be the case with woven cloth, is nevertheless imbricated with the material support. Though Elbers felt that she only gained recognition as an artist once she had taken up a recognized fine art form, that is printmaking, by the end of the 70s, her reputation extended well beyond the graphic arena. This was due largely to her widely disseminated publications. In 1980, Ed Rosbach, who uh, was an experimental textile artist who was acclaimed for inventive work that increasingly took the form of three-dimensional forms of basketry, but also an educator and a well-regarded scholar, published a groundbreaking book on what then must have seen, seemed an unprepossessing subject, the Victorian Paisley, Paisley shawl. In his book on the shawl, Rosbach advanced the bold argument that these artifacts at their best represented the final brilliant flourishing of European textile craft based in hand weaving. Rosbach ended this pioneering text by acknowledging that contemporary hand weaving was far removed from these Victorian artifacts. And I quote, nowadays the weavings of ancient Peru are greatly admired, he wrote, for they fit today's concepts of hand weaving. Achieved by laborious hand methods on primitive looms, they're the antithesis of today's power weaving. From the 50s onwards, Rosbach concluded, and I quote, weavers turned away from work that was anonymous and impersonal. When their work was least machine-like, the hand weavers were most certain that it was truly a free personal expression. That said, Rosbach nonetheless asserted that the Paisley shawls, too, were modern. And I quote, Although handwoven, they appear as mechanical as everything in our society, he said, adding, They are celebrations of the machine. It's not their Victorianism that interferes with our full appreciation, but rather their modernism, 
Arguably, no one had done more to promote the ancient textile forms of Mesoamerican America than Annie Albers through both her own textile art and her writings, which had taken on the status of primary text in textile literature. On weaving not only discussed textiles seriously as they had not been treated before except by anthropologists, it also illustrated contemporary weavings alongside great forms from the past. Four decades later, as we trace the legacy of Albers on the work of younger artists, it is still the handcrafted part of her practice that is foregrounded and deemed most fertile. Think, for example, of works by Sarah Z and Leonor Antunas, both of whom have paid direct homage to Albers, as Anne Coxon points out in her essay in the catalogue for Tate's show. Among the hallmarks of their work, as of that of so many others who currently pay fealty to Albers, are clear evidence of the hand, recourse to manual or to what Rosbach termed primitive equipment, if some kind of loom is even involved, evidence of the laboriousness of the work's construction, and a structural composition realized as an implied, if not actual, planar form. Albers recognized no fun fundamental difference between the manual and the automated loom when it came to the production of utilitarian fabrics. The former was but a preparatory step for her, for the latter. Given that, quote, the help of the machine was essential if utilitarian textiles were to be more than a mere luxury, she said, differences between the mechanically and the ma manually made textile were for her largely a difference in purpose. Nonetheless, there remained a bifurcation in her practice between artworks, which is pictorial weavings, that are handmade, and utilitarian textiles such as yardage, yardage for interiors. That seems a clear division, and yet there's also something of a gray zone, as seen, for example, with the Vaccaro rugs, which are unique artifacts made by hand and hung on the wall, not used uh, as functional objects on the floor, and also the hooked rug uh, from 1959, which was intended to be hung on the wall. I want to put these observations beside the work she produced self-consciously as unequivocally fine art in late life, tracing the arc of her printmaking over the 70s. There, as we've seen in Mountainous Four, for example, evidence of not merely her hand, but that of the hands of the technicians who collaborated in the realization of these print works was virtually obliterated, occluded so that the impersonality of the mechanistic and technological was foregrounded, and seriality and repetition became their hallmark. In prints spawned from the design of Camino Real, her modernist aesthetic reverted to a language of geometric abstraction that directly emulated the mechanistic and te technological. In short, is it conceivable that at the end of her long life, Alvis could have become receptive to the idea of large-scale artwork, tapestries perhaps, that were produced by automation, mechanically, with power tools? And I realize this is a rhetorical question, but I put it out there nonetheless. By the mid-60s, when Albers published her speculations on textile art for the future, it was already widely recognized that in the marketplace, machine-knitted fabric was overtaking woven material 
due to the low economies and faster speed with which it could be produced. Alba's purchase of a knitting machine in the early 1950s and creation of a number of knitted fabrics samples for commercial manufacture as yardage suggest at least a passing interest in this new direction. Interlacing and knotting were techniques that she regarded as historical precedents for weaving and hence the likely impetus for drawings of loop threads and knots she'd made in the late 40s and then again in the late 50s, graphic designs that eventually were realized in the form of the hook drug that I just showed you. I found no evidence, however, that she ever entertained the notion that knitting, a technique that also involves looping a single thread, um, might have generated in automated form uh, a vehicle for an expressive art. In the mid-1980s, more than a decade after Albers had created her last handwoven artworks, the potential of machine knitting and generating artwork would be seized upon by another German-born artist, Rosemary Trockel. The extraordinarily wide-ranging body of work which Trockel has produced with yarns since the mid-80s includes what is still an ongoing group of works generally known as knit paintings. And you see two examples here. Uh, please note that the plaid work on the right is very much smaller than the work on the left. It's, it's something like 20 inches square. Note that plaid, too, is it, um, initially these, uh, the first of the knit works, of which the plaid work's an example, were modestly scaled, and they were based on readily available commercial designs for home use, home use in knitting. And note, too, that plaid is a design made originally for weaving, its rectilinear format of overlapping horizontal and vertical lines directly commensurate with the structure of fabric produced on a loom, but not cognate with that integral to either knitting manually nor with a knitting machine, a fact that's made more evident by the sly magnification or monumentalization of the design as it appears in Trockel's early woolen works. These knit works quickly evolved with computer assistance into other groups that were based uh, not on these commercial patterns, but on the artist's own designs, amongst the first of which were several that incorporated logos, such as the Woolmark, which you see on the left. When repeated in serial form, these motifs became all over patterns. A well-known trademark, the Woolmark, is a marketing device designed to guarantee genuineness and authenticity in terms of its material. Used in her knit pa paintings, it reads ironically, I think, in that while it serves to give value to the industrially manufactured material, the design is indebted to contemporary minimalist and related abstract styles. There's a further paradox in these knitted works. If their visual language and production techniques are manifestly modernist, the choice of materials, wool and yarn, puts such identifications into question. In 1988, Trockel described her initial motivations as a concern with, quote, signifiers of the feminine, with culturally inferior materials and skills such as knitting. In that interview, Trockel claimed that she wanted to find out, quote, 
whether it is possible to overcome the negative cliché by eliminating the handicraft aspect from the whole complex. I wanted to know, she went on, whether this negativity is to do with the way the material is handled or whether it really lies in the material itself. The Woolmark works were followed by another groups that directly reference paintings by such artists as Warhol, there's a raw, one based on a Rorschach blot, Jackson Pollock in another based on repeated stains and splotches, and maybe Nile Taroni in another with a repeated uh, minus sign. Giving the sobriquet that these works are generally referred to, knitting paintings are a, a kind of grounding in that they clearly can be read in some way as surrogate paintings. But Truckle's knit works explore not one set of concerns. When you compare such diverse examples as Cogito Ergo Sum, which appears to incorporate the artist's orthograph writing with those that refer directly to paintings by Warhol, Pollock, and Taroni, as well as the knit works with the Woolmark and Untitled 2004, which you see on the right, which is a vast collage of patterns based in plaids and checks that she'd used in her earliest knit works from the mid-80s. Within this heterogeneous corpus is a subset which I'll end on, those which directly invoke woven textiles, spe specifically works based on plaids and checks. In this particular group of knit paintings, Trockel's art probes questions raised by Alba's complex, multifaceted late work, I'd argue, while parting company with it in significant ways. For example, today's seriality and repetition have become signifiers of late modernist art styles and movements, whereas for Alba's they were simply pattern, and the signifiers, the signifiers of utilitarian fabric, while uh, a more a less rigidly formalized geometric abstraction was for her the hallmark of an early modernist iconography. Those differences apart, in contrast to those of Trockel's works, which are best read as surrogate paintings, as knit paintings, as are the Warhol and Pollock referenced works. In this small group based in plaids and checks, I think, they could better be labeled pictorial knittings following Alba's formulation, and hence this textile art that is contemporary art. Seen from this vantage, they productively, if provocatively, may be said to expand Alba's legacy beyond that manifestly handwoven lineage which is routinely highlighted today and exemplified by works by artists such as Serizy and Leonore Atunis. In 1980, Rosbach noted that the prioritizing of the handcrafted and the use of primitive tools over the mechanic, mechanical, the automated, and the technological. Four decades later, in the midst of what is called the digital revolution, we fetishize the handcrafted, as seen in the recent craftivist movement, with its emphasis on hobbyist aesthetics. In so doing, I'd argue, we risk underplaying the breadth and complexity of Annie Alba's practice, and with it, the range and richness of her legacy. Thank you.